Let's look in Deuteronomy chapter 8 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you want to follow along in the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 180. Pretty far away from our Matthew study, but uh, we're going to be taking uh, probably a break from that, um, at least today and, and perhaps even for Advent, which will be beginning next week. So, um, so anyway, thought we were in a good place to have a pause and so maybe uh, perhaps bring some other passages before you. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. And the word of the Lord says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that Yahweh swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and nor did your feet swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines a son, Yahweh your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For Yahweh your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land that he has given to you. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless the reading of it this morning. About uh, 10 years ago, there was a term that came into the vocabulary of our nation. It had actually been thrown around uh, ever since the 1950s, but most people had not heard of it until about 10 years ago. And the reason why was because in Texas, there was a case where a young man who uh, had two very wealthy parents, they were not together, but they were individually wealthy, and uh, this young man had literally everything he wanted in life, and, and, um, and he was not a very well-trained, very well-disciplined young man. And um, as a result, he was out partying one night, and he drove intoxicated, and he ended up hitting a car with four other people in it. The, uh, the four people in the car did not survive the accident. What got national attention about this case was that the judge who was presiding over the case only gave him probation instead of any real punishment or jail time. And one of the reasons why was because the lawyer, his, his family attorney, had argued that this kid was suffering from a case of what he called affluenza. Affluenza, you remember that? 
And what affluenza, the way it works is, uh, supposedly, is that when you have a child or you have a kid growing up in a home and they are given literally everything that they want in life, uh, they develop a psychological inability to think of other people. And they have a psychological inability to consider the consequences of their actions. And so this lawyer argued that this young man could not be held responsible for his actions. And that's why he got probation. And unfortunately, the judge bought it. Now, uh, thankfully, in the last few years, affluenza has been rightly declared to be a pseudoscience. It is not real in fact, the word I would use is entitled brat. But anyway, that, that's beyond the point. Uh, but uh, it has been declared to be a pseudoscience. But I think the word of God recognizes the danger of abundant blessing, especially when that abundant blessing comes to sinners, people who have not been redeemed. People, even when we have been redeemed, we're focused on the flesh. When we live in abundant blessing, there is an inherent danger of that. And the whole point of Deuteronomy chapter eight is to warn against that danger. In fact, if you look down in the chapter, he goes on in verses 11 through 13 to warn them, when you get into this great land, when you get into this place of abundant blessing, take care that you do not forget Yahweh your God and say that I have gotten all of these blessings by my own strength. I like to refer to that, you know, we believe in the solas here, sola, Chris, uh, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia. I would, refer, I would refer to that as sola bootstrapsia, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. And yet that is the number one religion of this culture that we live in. Because let's face it, we live in a land of abundant blessing. We live in a land that is of abundance of goodness that come to us. And while we are thankful for that, we also recognize that yes, there is a danger in that. And so that's why God is warning his people. They are, they are in the edge of the promised land. Deuteronomy is an expositional sermon on the Ten Commandments. Moses is preaching to his people. It is his farewell address, and he is telling them that of the Ten Commandments, this is how, this is what they mean, this is how they apply, and this is why you must follow them. You want a great example of what a sermon should be. It is the book of Deuteronomy. And so he is telling his people at the edge of the promised land that you are to obey the whole commandment that I have given you today so that you may live and multiply, go in and possess basically a picture of all the blessings and the total life that they are hoping and that they are dreaming will come to them in the land. God is telling them that if you want to realize the temporal blessings of the covenant, then you must keep the whole law. You must keep this whole commandment. And how are they to do that? This text ultimately, it ultimately comes down to giving thanks and remembering to give thanks for God. We just saw that in verses 11 through 13, but how do we get there? How do we get there? And that's what verses two through 10 is all about, is increasing that thanksgiving in their lives. And there's simply three instructions we're given. Look backward, look inward, and look forward. Look backward, 
Look inward and look forward. So let's look at these this morning, beginning in verse two. He tells them in verse two to look backward. He says, and you shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Now, I want you to stop right there for a moment and just think about this. Put yourself in the shoes of Israel. They have been in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the new generation. This is all they've ever known. Some of them, their childhood was in Egypt. And so they'll kind of remember that. But most of these, they have spent almost their entire lives in the wilderness. And all they have seen is defeat. All they have seen is death. They have literally watched the earth split apart and swallow their parents and grandparents. They have watched all of their parents die for their disobedience in the wilderness. And I don't know about you, but I think it's okay to think about that if there's one thing that these guys probably don't wanna do is remember the last 40 years. If there's one thing that these guys do not wanna keep in the front of their mind, I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life that when it's over, you just say, you know, I don't wanna think about that ever again. And you just try to dismiss it from your mind. And, and I imagine that's how these guys feel, but, but God is telling them, no, you are to remember those 40 years. Remember them. Why? The word remember, it, it's not just referring to a mental process. It's not just remembering facts. But the way it's used in the Old Testament, it refers to things like meditating, reflecting. It is a major part of the Christian life, major part of, of Israel's life. In fact, especially in the Psalms, it's a dynamic process that when I, when I remember the Lord, when I think upon the Lord, when I remember who he is and what he's done, there's a transformative nature to that, to where entire Psalms, where it starts off with this lament, and then they say, I, then I remembered the Lord, and the whole Psalm transforms into thanksgiving. There is, a, there is a nature of remembering here, of reflection that leads to transformation and trust in the Lord. It's not, it's not too much to say that what we're really referring to here is meditation. Meditating on the things of God, meditating on the truths of God. And that's what it's meant to do. As he says, don't just remember the hardships. Look what he tells them to actually remember. Remember the way that Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness. The way he led you. In verse three, what did he do? He humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. And then he fed you with manna that you did not know and your fathers did not know. He fed you, he humbled you, he made you feel need in order that you would experience his meeting your need. All of this to do one thing in verse three, to remind you wherever you find yourself, you are fully dependent upon God. You are fully dependent upon him. Man shall not live by bread alone but by everything, which is what it literally says, everything that comes out of the mouth of Yahweh. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I'm always preaching that we need to kind of tighten up our language a little bit about God speaking. Because God does not speak less authoritatively at some times than he does at other times. 
And so when we refer to God speaking, we need to really just kind of let that talk about the word. And when we feel those inner promptings and we feel those things, how God leads us, let's, let's, let's refer to them as promptings or, or ideas, but let's not refer to it as his speaking. Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by everything that comes out of the mouth of God. We don't want to put the authority of scripture onto our prompts and our urges. And so that's a, that's a whole nother conversation. But he wants you to see here that you are completely and totally dependent upon him for everything that we do. And what does that dependence look like? It looks like sustaining and it looks like maturing. Look what he says in verse five. Excuse me, verse four. He says, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. I don't know about you guys. It does not matter how much I spend on shoes. When I'm at the end of the day, I'm ready for my shoes to come off and they tend to shrink a little bit. Now, maybe some of you don't have that problem, but, uh, but I do. In fact, I, I spend a lot of money on shoes more than I should because I found a certain brand that, that is the only ones that don't make my feet hurt after I've, I've been up for a large part of the day. People have told me to you know, roll it with tennis balls or, or stuff like that. No, I'm just gonna spend 180 bucks on shoes. That <laughs> seems like tennis balls would probably work a little better, but can you imagine walking around in the wilderness for 40 years and not in these nice brooks Shoes, not these, but not in these uh, nice Brooks tennis shoes, but uh, I saw some of you guys, yeah, but uh, not, not in nice Brooks tennis shoes, but you're walking around in ancient sandals. Have you ever seen pictures of these things? They're horrible. And not one person got fasciitis. Not one person got gout. Not one person, not their feet never swelled. Their clothing never wore out, but God sustained them throughout that entire 40 years. And so the first part of God's dependence, the first part of our dependence upon God, rather, is that he sustains us, but also in verse five, he matures us, he grows us. He says, know then in your heart, Know in your heart that as a man disciplines, trains, or, or raises his son, so also Yahweh, your God, disciplines, trains, and brings you up as well. It's not that the Lord is simply sustaining you. He is also maturing you. He's also making you to be more like Christ. All of those hardships that they faced in the desert, all of those things that they went through in the wilderness were all for one thing because God was, he declared them, he had rescued them. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son and now he is training them what it's like to live as the son of God. What it means to be a child of God. He allowed them to experience all of those things, hunger, thirst, all of those things they experienced. Why? For one reason, so that you would understand that I am the one who sustains you and I have a purpose in your life to conform you into my image, to 
to be a child of God. Remembering, beloved, is such a vital part of the Christian life. In fact, look at uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse 11, Paul in his argument, he's reminding them, he says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by in the flesh by hands. He's Paul, to make his argument, he's reminding them, remember where you came from, that you were cut off, you had no hope. You were the enemies of God. You were, you were separated from God. You were separated from the people of God. And he calls them to remind them where God called them from. In fact, consider Paul's own testimony in several places. Like, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He's remembering his past. But why is he doing that? Not to dwell in it, but to say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Remembering is such a vital point of the Christian life. So vital, in fact, that even that all throughout the scripture, you have the old covenant and you have the new covenant and the, and the ongoing sign of both covenants involve remembering Memory was built into the communal meals of Israel, and it is also built into the communal meal of the church. Remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22. He says, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them, saying, Do, this is my body given for you. Do this how? In remembrance of me. These things are to strike up the memories that God has brought us through these years and every nook and cranny we've had to walk through has been used by God to convince us of our dependence upon him, to sustain us and to form us into the image of Christ. So it's not just a mental process. It's not just remembering what happened, but it's reflecting on it. It's meditating on it. It's thinking about how God is using it in my life. Say, how do I do that? This is where I think the Philippians 4.8 questions that we've talked about before come really in handy. It helps you reflect. Paul says, think upon these things. Something happens in your life. You're going through a sickness. You're going through a, a surgery, whether minor or major. You're going through whatever it might be. What is true about this? What is honorable about this? What is of good report about this? And you reflect on that, all of these, all of these ways that God is using this in my life to, to develop my way of thinking, of thinking his thoughts after him. That's one way we can reflect on the things in our life, the precisely the pattern that we see in so many Psalms. That the psalm is lamenting, but then they remember the truths of God and it transforms the psalm. I think specifically of, of Psalm 42, that wonderful thing that, that, that we sing the first line of it, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. But have you ever read the rest of the psalm? And he talks about all of, the, all of the difficulties that he's going through. He talks about all of the pain and hardship and sorrow that he's going through. And yet three times between Psalm 42 and 43, he reminds himself of the truth. Why are you downcast, my soul? 
Remember the Lord. You know, sometimes you have to preach yourself the truth more than once. In fact, sometimes you have to do it pretty much every moment of the day. And that's, what, that's the model we see before us in that psalm. Remember, why are you so cast down, my soul? Remember the Lord and his goodness, and he will lift you up. You know, some really struggle with thanksgiving in our culture. Some really struggle with the idea of gratitude. Some really struggle. It, when you're in the midst of a depressive state or you're in the midst of anxiety or you're in the midst of, of something going on, it's real easy to judge everything by that thing that you're experiencing at this moment. It's so easy to say, man, life is going bad right now. And then you look back in history and your personal history and all of your experiences and you say, look at all the bad things that always happened to me. What's, what's the cure for that? Is to remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Fight those Fight those lies with God's truth. E. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote an excellent book on spiritual depression. And here's what he says. He says, the problems with a lot of Christians is that we listen to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. When, you're, when your flesh is wanting to tell you these lies, fight back with truth. Think on these things. And so we need to look backward, but we also need to look inward. Look at verse six. He says, and you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh, your God, by walking in his ways and by fearing him. He reiterates that primary command. Now, uh, you are to keep the commandments of the Lord. Now, I wanna, I wanna stop right here and pause for a moment because in a lot of evangelical churches, because we are so afraid of works righteousness, we are so afraid of, uh, of works and salvation that sometimes we can hesitate to preach obedience to the commands. And, and that's a legitimate concern. I, I, I have that concern as well. And, um, and that is a legitimate concern. And so we've always got to back up and look at this because God is commanding obedience. And by the way, beloved, it is not against the gospel of grace to teach obedience to God's commands. It is not against the gospel of grace. The, the faith that saves, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is always be accompanied by, by, by uh, fruit of our salvation, fruits of, depend, of repentance. And so when we look at a section like this, we've always got to back up a little bit and ask ourselves, okay, God is commanding obedience, but... If you turn the page in Deuteronomy chapter seven, in verses seven and eight, he tells them, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. This is verse six, I'm sorry. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people. Watch this, verse seven. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. It is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath he swore with his father. So again, I want you to see that the obedience that he is commanding in verse eight is in the context of the grace he gives them in chapter seven. And so yes, we teach obedience to the commands, 
I mean, we certainly don't want to teach disobedience, right? But we always do it in the context of the covenant, in the context of grace. God does not command us to obedience for grace. He commands us to obedience from grace. And there is all the difference in the world there. He doesn't command us to obedience for grace. He commands us to obedience from grace. And it's in that mentality that we come back to verse six, very important when we understand that distinction that we are not obeying for grace, we are obeying from grace. When we understand that distinction, then we will have the right kind of obedience. The right kind, not just simple checking off the boxes kind of obedience will do. That's legalism. That's moralism. And that will get you nowhere. But what is God commanding us? What kind of obedience is he commanding us to? Look at what he says in verse six. He says, you are to keep the commandments of Yahweh your God. How? By walking in his ways and fearing him. And so number one, he says walking. Walking is often used as a metaphor in both the Old and the New Testament. It's often used as a metaphor for speaking of the everyday living of life. You know, in so many evangelical churches and, and even reformed churches and, and fundamentalist churches and all the ones that, that really preach the, the gospel, one thing that we often tend to do is we tend to focus on the big moments, you know, the, the make a big decision for God, make a big decision, make a big move for God. But beloved, I, I find it interesting that the metaphor for Christian living often in the Bible is walking, not jumping, because life is not lived in two or three giant leaps. It's lived in the everyday millions of tiny steps you take. And that is where, in obedience to the Lord, that's where it is most important. That's where it must happen. In other words, in the little everyday moments that matter, moments of your life, will we follow God in this moment? Or will we not? Will we choose to show anger in this moment? Or will we choose a gentle answer? Will we choose to return evil for evil? Or will we choose to overcome evil with good? It's in those little insignificant moments that have all the significance in the world. Why? Because they are so small. And it's those little steps that add up to a mile, and then two miles, and then to a great distance. Those little moments that add up to a day, to a week, to a year, to a lifetime of faithfulness. And so walking in his commands, but also fearing the Lord. See, this is, this is what the legalist leaves out. He's got, he's got the walking down, he's got that. He's got the obedience down, but he leaves out the fearing part, or at least he misunderstands it. Because when we think of fearing, we think of fearing as punishment, as cursing, as, as things that is going to go against us. But this is, this is not that idea. It's the idea of holy reverence. 
And yes, there is an element of fear involved as we think about it. Yes, that is there. But it is an all-inspired understanding of God that moves us, that prompts us, that makes us want to obey him. It's that all-inspired vision of God as we see Christ in scriptures and we think, I want to be like him. That prompts us to obedience. It's like the kid learning to play an instrument. Sure, he gets bored with all the scales. Melissa, how many kids do you get complaining about all the scales you make them play? All the time, yes. <laughs> it's like the kid who hates the drudgery of playing the scales, but then, oh, one day he attends a symphony and he hears the majesty, the inspired sounds of a Bach or a Beethoven. Or he goes and watches Star Wars, watches the movie, and the, and, the, and the orchestra plays it while he's watching the movie. Batman's coming pretty soon, too. I'm very excited. <laughs> That's the Arkansas Symphony Orchestra, by the way. But he sees this, and all of a sudden, he's inspired. He's awed. He hears this awesome, this beautiful music, and now he goes back to his piano or whatever instrument he's playing, and he has a new rigor about it. He has a new vigor about it because he saw that inspiring sound. He saw that inspiring symphony, and that's what he wants to do. And so he goes back to his instrument, and he plays with renewed focus. Why? Because he, was, he had that awe-inspired vision of what could be, of what is, and it prompted him to do everything he could so that he could be like that. That's what we talk about when we talk about the fear of God. It's this awe-inspired vision. Beloved, do you have that image of Christ? Do you see him as he walks through the roads of Galilee and he reaches the unreachable? Do you see him hold out his hands to lepers, broken, hurting people, and heal them, give them the only chance that they thought would never come? Do you see him in the temple smashing the relics of apostate religion and shrewd gamesmanship in the name of God? Do you see him calm the storms with only a word? Do you see him raise the dead and decaying Lazarus back to life? Do you see him teaching the multitudes of how they can have the life that he offers them? Do you see him arrested in the garden for crimes he did not commit? Do you see him put through a sham trial, beaten mercilessly? Do you see him denied by friends, carrying his cross, walking up Golgotha, dying on the cross so that we may have a part in his life? Do you see him buried in the grave for the better part of three cold, dark, hopeless days? And then do you see him burst forth from the grave again, raised by the Father, conqueror of sin and death and hell for you? Do you see him ascending to his Father? upon the highest throne? And do you see him praying for you, preparing a place to receive you home, to live eternally with you? Does Christ not inspire you? Does Christ not give you that awe-inspired look of God that to see the Father is to see him? And don't you want to be like him? Do you not desire to live in a way so that others can see his life in you? Can you honestly look at the life of Christ and not be awed? 
and not be taken by wonder. If you can't, you're not reading the Bible right. If you can't, you're not looking at Christ. How can we look at Christ and not be inspired? You wanna talk about Thanksgiving, that's the birth of Thanksgiving. That's where it comes from. We look inward. Are you inspired by Christ? Are you awed by him? We look backward at the way that he has led us to teach us full dependence. And we look forward in verses seven and 10. A lot of this is contextual to Israel. These promises were given to them, which we know in history they failed to realize completely. He says, for the Yahweh, your God, is bringing you into a good land. And he just describes it over and over and over and over and over again, just piling up image after image after image after image for three, four long verses, just describing the land over and over and over again. And again, I just want you to think about this for a moment. Put yourself back in Israel's shoes where they are. Think about the desert that they just walked through. Think about all the death that they, just, that, that they had just lived with. You've just spent 40 years in the wilderness. All you have eaten is manna and quail. And you don't even know what manna is. All you have, all you have survived on is what is merely necessary to live. And that's it, nothing else. Imagine that as you hearing this for the first time and God just piles up these descriptions of the new land that they are about to go into. A land that is, that is full of wheat and barley, a land of brooks of water, of fountains of springs, valleys and hills, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, honey, You'll eat bread without scarcity. You will lack nothing. Can you imagine the power of that image to a bunch of people who just spent a generation in the wilderness? Who just spent a, wild, a generation in the desert? Beloved, so often I remind you that in biblical theology, we are the church in the wilderness. We are not the church in the promised land. We are the church militant. We are not the church triumphant. And as we walk through this life, we will experience the realities of walking through the wilderness. We will experience life at its worst. We will still face the battles of our day. We get tired. We get restless. We get discouraged. We get hurt. Hurt by family. Hurt by friends. Hurt even by people in this church. We have difficulty with jobs. Mistreatment from coworkers. And you think about what this must have sounded like to Israel. But beloved, we have the same promise. 
and all the things that I have just named, listen to the words of Christ to you this morning. Beloved, in John 14, he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Or hear these words from the revelation of Christ. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more. The former things have passed away. The point is this, verse 10, that when you shall eat and be full, you shall bless Yahweh, your God, for the good land he has given you. That's the point of it all that it will all be to the glory of God. And we will worship him forever for his grace that he has given us. And that's what Thanksgiving is all about. Not the holiday, just living a life of Thanksgiving. Says that God is enthroned on the praises of his people. Beloved, when we live a life of thanksgiving, we acknowledge the sovereignty of God, that he is the one from whom all good things, every good and perfect gift is a gift from our Father above. And we worship the giver, not the gifts. And we focus on a life that is lived in loving thankfulness to him. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know why. You may be excited about Thanksgiving. You may be one who's struggling with the holidays. Whatever the case may be, though, I do know this, that the Lord your God is with you, that he is guiding you as a father guides his son and that he is training you to depend upon him. He's sustaining you, and he's maturing you into the image of Christ. And if you don't know Christ this morning, you don't have that assurance. But maybe the hardships you're going through are the very things that God is using to bring you to him. I've tried it my way. I've tried doing it the way I think is right. And I've landed on my face every single time. I've done a face plant way too many times in my life. Maybe all those things has brought you to the point to where you're ready to acknowledge that you need Christ as your savior. Maybe all those things have brought you to the place where you're here today. Beloved, there are no accidents. God has brought you here today. And if you are here, It may be because God is calling you to himself.
We come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ lived, we've been studying about him in Matthew, we've been looking at his life and the implications thereof. What's gonna happen toward the end of Matthew and all the gospels is that Christ is going to die on the cross for our sins and substitution for you because your sin has earned the wrath of God. Your sin has earned punishment. Just like like any other high treason against a king, God is your king and we have committed high treason against him and the punishment for that is death. But because he loves us so much, he sent his only son, fully God, fully man, who lived in perfect righteousness his whole life, earning the righteousness you need. And then he died on the cross so that he could take your punishment. And because his work was enough, God raised him on the third day. And now he's ascended into heaven and offering himself to everyone as a rescue from God's punishment. A rescue from from sin. And if that's you and you're here this morning, that's what you need. And if you wanna be truly thankful, then that is the reality that you must live in. Christ in us, he who gives the grace, what? Gets the glory. God has given you so much grace, beloved. How much glory will you give to him? Our Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for these truths. My feeble words and my feeble attempts of trying to explain them are never enough to move a soul. But I pray this morning your spirit has been active. I pray that he is working. And if there is one here who for any reason, Lord, whether in any way that you're working in them, perhaps it's for salvation, perhaps it's because they've received the word, but they need to confess it in baptism, following after you. Maybe it's that they need a a church that preaches the truths of scripture to the best of their abilities and doesn't supplement it with the world's wisdom. Or maybe there's just someone here that struggles in the holidays. They struggle with the memories of loved ones gone before. They struggle with the pain of of bad relationships in the past. Perhaps even now they're struggling with relationships that are not open to their faith and how they want to express it this holiday season. Lord, whatever the difficulties are, may your grace envelope them in your in your in in comfort and peace to know that no matter the, the no matter the situation, you are you are sovereign and you are good. And if that's you this morning, I invite you to come. Let's stand together. And sing this wonderful hymn of dependence. I need you every hour. I need you to sustain me. I need you to mature me into the image of Christ. I need you. And I need Christ every hour. Let's sing together. <laughs>